Welcome everyone to the Sound of Collaboration podcast. I'm your host from the Collaboration Council, Elijah Wheeler, here today uh, with my super producer, Pete Garza, uh, and I'm pleased to be joined by the county's first ever Chief Equity Officer, Tiffany Ward. Tiffany, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to have you here with us today. I want to take a moment out to uh, wish all those within the uh, within earshot, I guess I should say, of this podcast, good health and well-being. We hope that you all are taking care of yourselves. Of course, practicing social distancing, uh, being as safe as you possibly can, washing your hands, doing all those kinds of things uh, that you need to do in order to stay safe uh, during these times. But most importantly, being vigilant about your mental and emotional health as well, too. Getting as, as much vitamin D as you possibly can, when you can, at a safe distance outside. Uh, and those kinds of things. We are we are hopeful that uh, we will be able to see the, the light at the end of the tunnel eventually uh, with this. So with all that being said, uh, welcome to, I guess, what we would refer to as a quarantine edition of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whole new world we're living in. That's right. It's, it's a completely new uh, world that we're living in, and, and it will be forever changed uh, by this moment that we're experiencing right now. So as I stated earlier, we're joined today by Ms. Tiffany Ward, who's the county's first ever chief equity officer. She was unanimously confirmed on February 25th of this year uh, by our county council. So we, A, want to congratulate her and B, want to welcome her to the program today uh, for that uh, precedent uh, in the role here in the county as, as the county's first chief equity officer. And uh, I think one of the things that we want to make sure that we do is we give everyone an introduction to uh, who Tiffany is. And with that being said, Tiffany, just give us a little bit of background on who Tiffany Ward actually is for those who don't know. A little bit about me, I guess, um, and kind of how my how I came to be in this role and with this worldview. Um, well, I'm a native Washingtonian. I grew up in the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, I guess the 90s. Um, and uh, Shaw in those days was a largely African-American neighborhood. Um, I would say working lower middle, working to lower middle class neighborhood. Um, grew up with my mom, two sisters, um, grandmother, large family. Um, and, you know, lived there, went to school there, loved life there. Um, and I guess my first introduction to Montgomery County came in sixth grade. I, uh, I was a elementary school age kid and was going to a program called the HAP, which is the Higher Achievement Program, which is an enrichment program for what people deemed as smart kids in public school then, um, and tested into, um, a bunch of schools, but my mom decided that I should go to Holton Arm School, which is, a an all-girls school in Bethesda, some may or may not know. Um, and then that's when my world began to shift. Um, you know, uh, like I said, growing up in an all-black, mostly um, lower, lower middle-class neighborhood to a very white, well, walking, walking into a white, wealthy world was just like a whole nother, um, was a mind-blowing in many ways. So, um, walked into, classrooms, buildings, um, with, with families and girls who were incredibly wealthy. I was one of two black girls in all of the lower school, which was quite an experience. Um, 
And it, it really shifted the way I thought the world worked. Uh, it was clear to me that there are two very different worlds, right? One uh, where people struggled, worked hard, be clear, worked hard, uh, but struggled to, for the basics. Uh, and to another world where folks likely worked hard, but had more than their share. Um, and so I began to see kind of the, um, I would say the dichotomy uh, of America, right? Um, and the dichotomy in schooling, the dichotomy in treatment, um, in expectations, in, um, in, and also in perceptions. So that was a, one of the, that's, that experience definitely shaped who Tiffany Ward is. I um, then went on to, to go to school in Boston, which was quite <laughs> uh, an experience as well. Boston, unlike DC, um, has a pretty large um, lower, so lower middle class white population, which really um, actually also transformed my my thought pattern. I realized that I'd grown up in a city where um, not only were we segregated by race, but we were segregated very much by class. Like if you were white in the Washington DC area, you were more or less middle to upper middle class. And if you were black, you kind of spanned um, the class spectrum. You could be, you know, lower class, you could be middle class, you could be upper class. But I realized I'd never really seen poor white people until I went to Boston and what that meant for my own um, kind of racial theory, right, uh, about how the world works. Um, I'm also, you know, outside of my race consciousness, a, a big music lover, uh, a lover of young people. Um, before I came to this work, I, um, I did youth services work for, for many years. I worked in mentoring. I worked in, um, I worked in workforce investment. I currently still run a teen, um, What's the word I want to say? A life skills program for teens uh, at my old Boys and Girls Club in Logan Circle in Washington, D.C., another neighborhood that's very much changed from what it was when I was growing up there. Uh, so I have a love for young people. was actually a child development and psych double major in college. I thought that I would be uh, maybe a child psychologist, um, things of that sort, even though even then I had, I had a, a penchant for politics. I knew that um, I wanted to to make a big difference. And I thought that politics or policy was the way. So that's a little bit about who I am. Um, yeah, both professionally and personally, you know, if I'm not doing that, then I'd love to travel. Um, I think my most recent trip was Jamaica. My most exotic trip has probably been like Vietnam, Bali. Um, so I love international travel, local travel, young people, um, whatever expands my mind, reading, music, all the above. Great. That's that's quite a uh, wow, an assorted and uh, varied, I think, childhood and coming of age uh, kind of um, education for you uh, that shapes currently. I'm quite sure a large part of your work and and your lens as in terms of equity and what that should look like. You know, my first introduction to equity was during a conversation with uh, someone many many years ago in which uh, I guess I had confounded uh, equity and equality, like so many people do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or excuse me, not confounded, but conflated the two, uh, like many of us do. And 
the way that it was explained to me was that let's say everyone is barefoot and there's a need for shoes. And uh, I'm telling you that we're going to prepare, but we're going to get shoes for everyone. And you walk outside and you see that there's all size 10s, but they're shoes. Uh, would that work for you? And obviously my, my response was, no, it wouldn't work for me. I wear a size 13. I, you know, I, my toes would be jacked up trying to put on a size 10 pair of shoes, uh, to which then uh, the person who I was conversing with responded that. So see, that's, that's a quality. See, if everyone's barefoot, then we provide shoes for everyone. But true equity would be providing shoes that actually fit in your correct size. So not only now do you not do you have a pair of shoes, but you also have a pair of shoes that actually fits and works for you. And so that was interesting for me to, to, to learn about it in, in such a way. And from then on out, it became kind of this uh, constant, I think, conversation internally for me uh, around what does equity really look like? And it's, it's so varying, right? And, and equity, to a certain extent, or what people need is a very relative thing depending on a set of circumstances for, for whoever you're talking to. So with that, Tiffany, I, I'm quite sure you get this question all the time. I'm, I know that I heard it from people when your position was first announced. What actually is the role of the chief equity officer here in uh, the county? So the role is actually pretty specific. Um, if you look at the legislation, which um, was passed or signed December 2nd of 2019, um, really it lays out the role uh, as a chief equity officer pretty clearly so the chief equity officer is to oversee um, the work of the bill which really says uh, that all of the county employees uh, should be trained in racial equity uh, that all of the departments should have a racial equity and social justice uh, work plan that all of um, the trying to think, uh, managers and supervisors do, do the same, that every uh, department should work with the, um, should work with the racial equity and social justice department to implement the racial equity and social justice plan uh, that, you know, I am told or, or to create a racial equity and social justice plan for the county as a whole. Uh, we are also, uh, to do a racial equity and social justice um, impact statement for bills that come out of both the county council and um, from the executive side. Now the council bills will be, uh, will be examined or given their racial equity impact statement uh, by the Office of Legislative Oversight. Um, we have a committee that, you know, that oversees our work. So we're to, to staff that committee to uh, to do constant community engagement um, and to make sure that the constant education um, for uh, for employees is is up to date and is uh, implemented. So that's kind of the work of the department, which right now is just me. Uh, and so that's a big uh, uptaking. And so right now we are taking on well, I plan to take on training first, though I will say that COVID-19 has thrown a bit of a monkey wrench into, into my plans. So uh, we will be, I'll be adjusting on the fly as we'll be doing training or there will be a need to do training remotely. So that'll be, um, that'll be interesting. In fact, I've, I've had calls uh, with a few people who are 
slated to support me around that and trying to figure out how that will work in the next couple of months. So anyway, that's not, you didn't ask about that, but yeah, that's the role of the department. Uh, great. So I, you know, that I think that that provides an interesting or or a natural segue to kind of the the next question that I have, uh, which is, what does equity look like uh, in Montgomery County? So how do you would it be would it look one specific way, or are there a multitude of ways that equity would kind of play out depending on where you you live geographically speaking, or where you work within? the county, uh, specific departments, but what, what does equity actually look like here? So for me, when I took this role, I really, I feel like equity looks like, um, I think about it from a residential standpoint, from, from the standpoint of our constituents. For me, it looks like equity and outcomes. It looks like um, black children or brown children who are, um, who are with or without means have the same outcomes, if not better than their white counterparts, um, that they are not just giving access, right? Not just the size 10 shoes um, to, to services, to, um, yeah, services, I guess, programming, but that all of those, uh, that access actually leads them to outcomes in their life that lead to a greater quality of life. Um, so for me, it is what are we doing on our side of the table to make sure that our constituents are having the same, if not better outcomes than we know our, our white residents um, have. And so it really is kind of incumbent upon us to examine what we are doing that is leading to those outcomes. So that, that means, um, to some extent, uh, owning the fact that what we are doing is currently um, also impacting outcomes right now, right? So, um, so an examination of that, an honest examination of that, and then a retooling so that people actually get the outcomes that, um, that we say we want for all of our residents. So, so thanks for that explanation of what equity would look like. So I, my question, I think a, a follow-up question to that would be, certainly when we think of equity, equity is not solely something that has to do or revolves around ethnicity. So what does equity then in that case uh, do for uh, women, right? Or for people who uh, identify as LGBTQ, right? Uh, or some of these other things. Obviously there's the intersection of such and, and uh, that level of understanding is, is unique and important. But for those who may say, well, hey, there are other inequities that we see outside of, of race or ethnicity, what would that look like? Or what would be your response to something like that? So I would say the reason we leave with race, it's quite honestly, when we don't, we end up with the same racial hierarchy we've always had. That is when we say we are, we are focused on women's rights, and I think that's a great thing. Right. And women, you know, get a higher standing in life. You know, their pay is increasing. Um, they are having better health outcomes. Right. We know that then when we disaggregate by, by race and we look at women, the black women and Latino women are still at the bottom. Right. Because we haven't placed the needs of black and Latino women in that particular 
um, setting at the forefront. So even when we lead with other equity um, data or equity um, issues, black and brown people are always at the bottom. So if the question is, how are we going to um, attack a problem where black and brown people are not always at the bottom of racial hierarchy, then we must <laughs> uh, set up a system where we are speaking almost explicitly about black and brown people because otherwise they are lost in lost in the mix right we've gotten you know we and this is the case in the lgbtq community too we know right so even if we talk about uh equality around gender around sexuality uh we know that black and brown um folks in those communities are still some of the most marginalized within their community and without Right, so if you aren't if you aren't calling it out explicitly and controlling for it from the beginning, you get the same outcomes for those populations. So if we want better outcomes for those populations, then we have to keep better outcomes for those populations at the forefront. And so for me, um, I think one of the things that's most empowering about this racial equity work is that we keep we get to call it what it is. We get to we get to speak very clearly about the fact that racism um, has been the cause of much uh, despair and poor outcomes um, and not kind of speaking euphemism like we've been doing for hundreds of years about why um, Black people and Latino people have been, um, why, why they're at the bottom, right? So we, we create a whole bunch of class issues. We, we create a whole bunch of, um, policy around around economics without ever speaking about those um, issues within the frame of race. And I think if we are not speaking in the frame of race, we are just spinning our wheels, particularly if we're talking about creating a better quality of life for black and brown people. So um, yeah, we lead with race because we hope to, uh, to set up better lives for black and brown people, period. And, and and that's not to say that when you set these pro when you set about doing this work that life doesn't improve for everybody, right? So there's a term called targeted universalism, which really says that when we um, create better systems for those for those most marginalized, those systems in the end end up benefiting everybody. It's kind of what what in my industry they call the curb cut theory, right? So curb cuts are really explicitly for uh, the disabled, for people who use wheelchairs, for people who are unable to uh, to walk, you know, uphill to to take the big step off the curb, right? And so, yes, they do just that. They help people in wheelchairs. They help people uh, who have canes, but they also help mothers with who have strollers. They also help people who have other disabilities who are hidden from our view, right? And so, we would say that in the curb cut theory, that yes, we set out to. Um, to explicitly create a better or easier way for the disabled, but that creating that better, easier way actually create a better, easier way for all for all walkers, right? So, so there's that. But we want to be clear. We want to create a better quality of life um, for Black and Brown people and better and have better outcomes, um, and not because um, you know we 
we haven't set out to do that otherwise. We just haven't been explicit about it. I think, you know, we've called, we have so many um, disparate outcomes, whether it's the wealth gap, whether it's health disparities, whether it's, um, I don't know, help me, with, with all the other um, gaps that we, that we attempt to fill and we've attempted to fill them without ever really saying, um, you know, what's at the root cause of this? So that's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question. No, no, that, that was that was perfect. That was fun. I appreciate that. I, I think in a nutshell, what you're uh, pointing out is that race specific issues require race specific uh, answers, answers, right? Remedies uh, or, or remedies to address these things. So uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciated you also bringing up uh, targeted universalism and, you know, thinking back to the Americans with Disabilities Act and how there was a, a huge fight politically around getting that passed, right? Uh, which led to a lot of curb cuts and, and those kinds of things for people who had physical handicaps to have adequate access to spaces. But what happened was uh, once that was passed, there was this outpouring of support from people who did not have physical handicaps from those mothers having to push their babies and strollers. There was a big outpouring of support from uh, post office and, and, and mail carriers saying, thanks, this has been a big issue for years that we've had to deal with and that kind of thing. So when that remedy uh, was uh, you know, addressed and, and they decided upon it, it helped a whole slew of folks who uh, they had not necessarily thought about uh, you know, initially with, with that whole process. Right. So I appreciate that, that that kind of explanation around why this is so important. And then also the disaggregating of, of, of data and understanding that even with intersectionality, once you add that intersection of race or ethnicity to these other identities that we all have, we yeah. constantly see that people of color fall to the bottom statistically. Uh, and it's not due to any kind of inherent- Deficit. Uh, deficit or deficiency within people. Uh, but more so systems that have been put in place and institutions that have been put in place to actually lead to those outcomes, right? Right, so, exactly right. Considering all this kind of stuff and what's happening right now with, with COVID and the pandemic uh, and some of the impacts that it's had on just everyday life, uh, education. So obviously uh, MCPS is, is, is a huge part of the county's budget uh, every year. Yeah, the uh, school board has oversight of, of MCPS. In county, uh, whether it be our county executive or our county council, has little control and oversight of MCPS. Knowing that disparities will probably grow as a result of this pandemic, what, what is equity going to look like as a result of this in, in education? As a result of COVID? Yes. COVID has done a good amount of things. It has exposed um, what we knew were huge disparities, what we knew and talked about in many, for many years, decades almost, and, and never either decided to put the attention, the money, or the time into, into fixing. Uh, so it has exposed it. It has, um, chickens have come home to roost, so to speak, right? Um, the digital divide, right? How long have we known about the digital divide? How long have we 
both in software and hardware? How long have we let it um, linger, right? Because we never thought there would be a world where every child would need to be plugged in for school every day, right? In order to get a decent education. We never thought it would happen. So we, you know, wring our hands, we put out, um, you know, a few programs here, a few programs there. Comcast has a couple of computers here. Um, never thought that maybe we should create um, a countywide uh, Wi-Fi. Never thought that we should create, like that was, you know, and too much like socialism, right? Maybe folks just thought that that was too much. But now you have a world where if you do not have access, you're completely shut out. You're completely shut out. Same thing with, um, with health disparities. How long? How long have we known, right, that Black people um, disproportionately die from complications of diabetes, disproportionately die from uh, complications around heart disease, <laughs> disproportionately um, die from various other diseases, right? Uh, and now COVID, right? So now you have a disease that comes in or a virus that comes in and absolutely exposes um, all those disparities for which we have been nibbling around the edges, for, for which we have said, well, everybody has diabetes. Well, everybody is suffering from this. Why should we put more money here? Why should we put more money there? Except that now COVID is here and Black people are dying at an incredible rate from, um, from COVID-19 because we haven't put any um, any real efforts into uh, prevention one of those diseases in a black community and then not enough into into treatment right and so now we are we are set to be set back gosh i can't even tell you how many years um but and there is the but um Nobody can ever think that we will never be called to task anymore, that the day will not come where something this catastrophic will land all at once on us and hold us all into account for, for just going too slow, for thinking we had time, for thinking that this could not be done overnight, for thinking that um, the systems were too large or the money was too small, uh, to put into efforts. I think that uh, if there's any lesson to be learned from this is that we can move a lot faster if we wanted to. What I've seen in the last six weeks around systems change in the government has been mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. The county, um, there are very few, I can't even, I don't even know the percentage of people who were working from home before COVID hit. I know now we have more than 60% and doing it almost I mean, it's kind of crazy how easy it's been, right? Um, the fact that we've shifted, we've shifted our trainings online just within a matter of weeks, within a matter of weeks. So what could we really do if we really had a sense of urgency around racial equity? If we had a sense of urgency around filling those very same gaps that are now being exposed, right? If we didn't wrestle with notions of, well, why can't they pay for it? They pay for other things. If, if, it, if it was not a values um, proposition that we are, that we struggle with on, I think both on the personal level and on the uh, governmental level. 
right? Um, if we had the same sense of urgency and expediency that we had in, in dealing with a forced change that, like COVID, that we do, that we do, you know, with closing disparities and gaps, we get there a lot quicker. We don't have the time. We don't have the time, and COVID has exposed that for everybody. Has how has it set us back? Um, I don't know how young people are going to um, be able to get back this time. You know, I don't know if you can recover this time if you are a young person who is not uh, plugged in and who's not um, engaged, and then you go online, right, in school for school. Do you get that time back? Right. Um, if you are an elder or not even an elder, if you're a person who has uh, any of those comorbidities for COVID-19. I mean, the death rate for African-Americans tells you. You know. This this could this could be it. This has been it for many of us. Um, so. Um, and then we haven't even spoken about the wealth gap and what COVID-19 um, will do, has done to, to black wealth, right? When it comes to the economic impacts of this for black and Latino families, I think it is going to be massive. It's going to be massive. Um, folks who were teetering, right? Who were, you know, may have been poor but working, uh, who are now laid off, how long will it take for their family to recover, uh, to get another job, not just to get another job, to, to pay back rent, to, to dig out of that hole? What about folks who are just teetering, who are just about to make it to middle class, who are, you know, in the midst of buying a home, who now, you know, that loan is no longer available, right? So what, is, what does it look like um, to be able to recover um, that wealth or that opportunity for wealth? That could be many years, years that they do not have. Um, I think those are the numbers I'm actually really anxious to see. Um, and I think those numbers, much like uh, the health numbers, will be devastating for Black and brown people. Um, and if, even if we just look at the gig economy, the gig, the gig economy that's still kind of alive and well during this um, epidemic, I can tell you that almost all of the folks who I who deliver my mail, who deliver my food, who who are still cashiers, um, are black and brown people, and not just black and brown people, black and brown women. That has been fascinating. So, how much of that um, puts us at further risk of becoming um, of of getting COVID nineteen, right? So, um, so we already know that you know we're already kind of uh, what do you, I don't want to call it essential workers because these, this work was already essential, but these are um, kind of the support workers of the, of the world, right? And, all, and also the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable. So there are a lot fewer of us sitting at home <laughs> being able to do, do what you and I are doing over the internet. So um, I'm anxious to see those numbers, Elijah. I expect that much like the COVID-19 death numbers and positive numbers, they will be devastating. I agree. And I appreciate you bringing up the, the role uh, specifically of, of women uh, and that they've played 
uh, during the course of the pandemic. I, I, there was an analysis that was done a few weeks ago that I read, uh, I believe in, in the Times, uh, that found that one in three jobs uh, held by women were designated as essential. Yeah. Uh, and how that has really um, led to this awakening uh, that often the jobs that, that women, and specifically in this case, women of color, hold, uh, have been underpaid and undervalued, right? Yeah. And now those jobs or this unseen labor force essentially has kept the country running to a certain extent, right? And then also happen to be the ones to take care of those most in need. Yeah. The nurses, the nursing home workers, so on and, and, and so have you, uh, while also helping to continue to keep uh, money coming into their households uh, and right. shifting a lot of things too. Uh, and along those lines, there, there's also been this conversation of the racialization of uh, the pandemic uh, and mm. some of the uh, racialized statements that we've heard made at different levels around uh, the Asian American community and how I think based on some of the things I've read, it's shaken many of our members of the Asian American community to the core that now the sense of belonging has felt conditional. And so if something comes up and there's a person to point the blame at, uh, figuratively speaking, and literally speaking in many cases too. Uh, have you worked with members of the Asian American community around this specifically and what they're seeing as in terms of their treatment as, as a result of this and, and kind of how they're responding to that or not responding to it? Right. Well, I've had some conversations um, with uh, our head of human rights. I've had some conversations with the Asian American Health Initiative uh, about the work and, and, and how folks feel about this and particularly, you know, how the, um, how the community feels threatened um, how they are arming themselves because they don't feel like they they will be protected. Um, there's definitely a sense of um, needing to close ranks uh, amongst themselves in order to protect themselves. There is a, a genuine and real fear. Um, and um, And I think that folks, you know, some folks can be oblivious to it. Right. I don't know how you could considering the national um, rhetoric around it. Uh, it is it is unfortunate, but it is also pretty predictable. You know, black and Latino people aren't the only people who live in a racialized world. Like we all are racialized. And I think that um, because there are, um, I guess, better outcomes for some folks tend to forget that we are all racialized and we are all um, What's the word? Mm. I think for many of us, um, being American is conditional. Um, and so uh, when you, when that is, when you are faced with that so abruptly, I definitely understand how that could shake you to your core. Um, and it, as it should, as it should, right? This, this, um, agreement you thought you made with this country um, is conditional, right? Or, or is seen as conditional, maybe they see it as it's conditional. Um, and that is, it's a hard reality, um, especially because, you know, the national um, climate 
and not just around COVID, but, uh, you know, around race and, um, no, I'll just say race has been, has been crazy since, um, since 2016. Uh, <clears throat> and when I say that, I mean, has been really blatant and, and as, um, off-putting as any. And so this is why for me, it's un, un it's not, um, surprising. So Tiffany, I, I appreciate that that feedback and that insight to a lot of these issues that are that are very prominent, I think, right now for us and at the forefront of many of our minds. For for a lot of people, it's not only a question of, you know, what happens with my child's schooling, uh, when school starts back, or when can I physically return to work, but it's also a question for many people, how will I be able to find a job as a result of this? Yep. Uh, what will I do now that 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 loan fell through for that home because I lost my job, right? That's right. Um, what will I have to do in order to be able to access services that were once available for me to walk into and now I have to access it through this technology that's, that's right. very uneven for me in my home, right? That's right. So with those kinds of things, my question for you would be, you know, and this is, this is not meant to be ambiguous or broad in any kind of way, but where do we go from here? How do we start to emerge from this kind of cocoon of quarantine uh, back to some sort of sense of normalcy while keeping in mind that there are a lot of people whose issues have only been exacerbated by this pandemic? Yeah. So this is the opportunity, right? This is the opportunity. I think that <clears throat> while it is an incredible challenge, we really have an opportunity to write new policies, new programs, um, with an eye on not letting this happen again. And that eye would be with a racial equity lens. And so this is what I've really challenged myself with. Um, it's like, okay, that broke. We knew it was going to break. We didn't, we just didn't think it was going to break then. All right. So what does it look like if we build it anew? And if we build it anew, how does it consider us? How does it, how does it, uh, consider the folks at the bottom. So this is the opportunity, in my opinion, for racial equity, for um, for all actually equity, if I'm honest with you, um, to really look at making things better for all people, right? And not just making uh, policies that benefit folks who have access, folks who are in the most uh, fortunate positions to actually take advantage of it. So how do we write? bills, write plans, create in a way that says, I see you. We're going to mitigate for all of, um, for all the things that you've experienced to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right? So this is, this is the opportunity for us. This is a conversation I've had. At, I participate in a COG GARE, um, and COG is the Council of Governments. Uh, GARES, the Government Alliance for Racial Equity uh, work group with a bunch of other folks like myself um, who are either chief equity officers or just working in equity period around the region. Um, and that is what we will, what we are coming together on, right? Okay, this is the opportunity. Can we talk about um, a right to income now? Can we talk about um, guaranteed um, other guaranteed programs now? Can, can we talk about these? Can, can we actually put these in place? Uh, is it time? And I would say, yes, it's time. Um, 
So I am not trying to build a, a old, go back to the old normal, the new normal. The new normal should consider um, the people at the bottom, people we are now calling essential workers who just a few months ago, we were fighting not to get $15 an hour, right? So, um, so blatantly saying, no, the old normal is not going to get it. That we, we need a new normal and we're going to build a new normal with a racial equity lens um, in place. I want, as we come to a close, uh, and as difficult as it may be, uh, pandemic aside, if the county embraces equity and really viewing things through a, a lens of equity uh, moving forward, what would Montgomery County look like in, in the next two to three years? Two to three years. Gosh. Um, two to three years. So I think some of the big equity, the, the, um, what I call low hanging fruit, I think for me, it would look like an empowered and an entitled, um, community of color. One that, that is demanding, um, and engaging, um, the county um, on the things that they need and the issues that they um, know are affecting them. As far as systems are concerned, um, it would look like, quite frankly, resources that are um, that are put forth to to issues and to communities that most need them, um, and that. And that we are, um, that we've been talking about, where we've been talking about closing gaps and only kind of been throwing very little both uh, effort and uh, financial resources that I would say we'd have increased effort and, um, and resources. It would look like, um, I dare say like smaller gaps, um, but it would look like more Black and brown people who are um, who are homeowners, fewer uh, who are who are actually diabetic, have heart disease. Um, it would look like more black and brown children who are actually getting the resources uh, and supports they need in our school systems. Um, it would look like communities that are dependent on public transportation that are actually serviced at the level um, that they need and that produces um, a level of um, mobility that supports their thriving um, community. It would look like um, a county that, that, is, that has a sense of urgency about delivering um, for people who oftentimes have the least. Um, that, is, that is moving quickly, that is moving with some kind of purpose, um, almost as if their life depends on it, because in many ways it does. So that's what it would look like in the next two or three years. Um, gosh. I um <laughs> that feels heavy now for me, <laughs> right? It feels heavy. 
Um, but, you know, I think if COVID has taught us nothing else, it's taught us we can, what we can do in eight weeks, tell you that. Um, so we shall see, we shall see. Um, quite a task. Yeah, it is, it is. Well, Tiffany, we appreciate you joining us here today on the Sound of Collaboration for such a rich discussion around uh, equity and obviously uh, from your viewpoint as the county's first uh, chief equity officer. Again, congratulations on your appointment uh, to that duty and responsibility. Obviously, uh, it came just before this pandemic hit. So when you talk about equity in the face of such a massive uh, things such a pan such as excuse me a pandemic. Uh, it's a huge undertaking. Uh, we wish you well in your work and your endeavors, and obviously uh, hope to assist you all uh, in the county writ large and in any kind of way to ensure that equity is achieved on behalf of all members here and citizens of Montgomery County. Certainly, that that's important to us. As we close today, uh, wishing you all uh, health, good health. Uh, and happiness during this time. Certainly it's trying for many folks. And also want to take a moment out to thank our essential workers, those on the front lines, working in hospitals, nursing homes, delivering food, groceries, putting yourself in harm's way in order to keep things up and going and also taking care of those uh, who are not uh, in the best shape right now. So wishing you all well. Thank you for joining us today.